Well, good morning again. Great, great to be back, to be healthy. What a gift from the Lord. Appreciate that much more when you're not. <laughs> if you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to Luke chapter 3, where we'll continue our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 3, and we've been looking at verses 1 to 20 in kind of a series of its own, and looking at the kind of preaching that points people to Jesus. That's what we've been looking and looking at in chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, focus on the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to Jesus, the Messiah, the one who would prepare the way for him before his public ministry. Let me read for us, even though the focus of our attention will be on verses 15 to 20, this kind of last section of John the Baptist's ministry according to Luke. Well, we'll start in verse 1 just to pick up what we've studied and been a couple weeks, so get it all in our minds. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1, chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not say to you, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, 
who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, he added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the living God. This passage made me think about footwear. Uh, John mentions Jesus' sandals and his unworthiness to untie them. Uh, John's view of himself uh, in light of, as a preacher, uh, with a massive following, mind you, is that he is not even worthy to untie Jesus' sneakers. (laughs) This reminded me that I once heard uh, about an Instagram page. I don't have Instagram, but I heard about this page that was called Preachers and Sneakers. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Preachers and the letter N, Sneakers. It turns out the page has over 300,000 followers. Uh, It's a page highlighting high-profile pastors and their expensive tennis shoes and other clothing articles that are very expensive. Some tennis shoes that they're wearing while preaching that are over $6,000. I was like, I didn't even know they made $6,000 shoes. It it also highlights other apparel, jackets and whatnot that they're wearing. My main problem with this is, what are these preachers doing preaching in sneakers? I mean, come on. Didn't they get the the, the memo, the uniform, you know? (laughs) No. In all seriousness, the issue isn't even necessarily the cost of their clothing, but the platforming of themselves to almost be uh, focused upon them and not upon the person of Christ. And it just reminded me of that, uh, that this is a perfect illustration of what you have in contrast with John. You see, these preachers... I don't really know any of them. I didn't spend too much time on it. Uh, It was just fodder for my illustration. Uh, But what I think it reveals is the vanity of these preachers to make this what they want people to know them by. And, And really the issue is that they are seeking to promote themselves and not the person of Christ. They're seeking a following to be influencers uh, for their brand, but not for Christ. Tim Challies actually wrote an article. He's a a pretty well-known blogger, uh, and he wrote an article on this phenomenon, phenomenon, if, I don't know if it's what you would call it, this, this uh, page and the followers that it has, and he, here's what he says about it. it he, he calls them not shepherds, but influencers, and he says this, quote, we can't forget or deny that by accepting the call to ministry, pastors accept a greater level of scrutiny, a scrutiny meant to consider what they are displaying to the church and the world around them. But while they are called to display something, it's not labels or brands or prosperity or other markings of worldly success. Pastors are called to display godly character and qualified only as long as they maintain it. The primary concern of pastors should not be the image they project, but the character they display. In this way, pastors need to ensure that what they wear doesn't in any way conflict with the far more important display of Christ-like character. They need to know that their clothes will either complement or contradict the message of Christ. They need to be willing to deny themselves anything that might cause people to have trouble seeing past them to see Christ. They need to be the first to display the humility and modesty that is so very precious to God. End quote. It's a good word. It's one thing to be a celebrity pastor, of which I am not, uh, but... 
it's not so much that a lot of people follow a person, but why are they following them? Or why do they benefit from them? What are they known for? John the Baptist, we could say, was a celebrity pastor, so to speak, or preacher. I mean, the whole of, you know, the region is going out to hear him and be baptized by him. He is very well known. Yet what is he known for? He's known for being a big finger that points away from himself to Christ. That is his ministry. He is a forerunner, and that is what we know him as, the forerunner, a voice. And that, it's so amazing that uh, Isaiah's prophecy about the forerunner, John the Baptist, is just a voice. That is, it's so nondescript. It is just his voice. That's what you need to remember, not who he is and all of, you know, about John, but rather what is his message and is the message that points away from himself to Christ. John had become so popular, we learn, that people were under such great expectation that some began to voice out loud the idea and the thought that maybe John himself is the Messiah. And they began to like maybe whisper and say it, and word got back to John. People think you're the Messiah, John. What of it? Yet it's in this very context that John displays his character, his true character, and how he views himself. He displays something that every preacher and every Christian, really, and every herald of the gospel must have. Humility. Humility. He also accepts us, or helps us to view ourselves properly before Christ and others. John helps us to see that seeing ourselves rightly is directly connected to us seeing Christ rightly. And seeing ourselves rightly before God and Christ will then enable us not to live in fear of man, but to speak the truth boldly, clearly, joyfully before any audience, which we see is what John does. He is so clear in his identity before Christ and his relationship to him that he'll even speak to Herod without regard to the consequences of that, uh, what that may bring. He does not regard the face of man. It doesn't matter that Herod is a high one in authority. He'll speak the truth to him just like he'll speak it to anyone else. Why? Because he understands his relationship with Christ, his position, his placement, and it sets the course for everything else. It's such a great lesson for us that our identity is so tied to how we view Christ, which is going to impact how we view ourselves, then it's going to impact how we relate to others. So this comes, though, in the context of these seven marks that we've been looking at of preaching that points people to Jesus. Let me remind you of what we have already covered. We saw in verses 1 to 2 the context of preaching. And it comes in this religiously uh, corrupt context as well as a politically corrupt context. Five politically corrupt rulers, two uh, religiously corrupt leaders in Israel. And the point was, preaching comes at all times, in all places, in season and out of season. See the call of preaching, which is repentance in verse 3. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the content of preaching which Isaiah, um, where Isaiah is quoted in verses 4 to 6, and he heralds the Messiah. He derives his content to preach from the scriptures. Then we saw the confrontation of preaching in verses 7 to 9 as he confronts the sin and reveals their true condition as a loving act to prepare them to receive the truth. 
Then we saw the counsel of preaching. As some begin to respond in repentance, they want to know how that should manifest itself, what that would look like. And in verses 10 to 14, he began to give some examples of how that might look dependent upon certain people's vocations and callings in life, how repentance might manifest itself. That was the counsel of preaching. And then we, we see the last two this morning. In verses 15 to 18, we see the Christ focus of preaching. And then finally, we see the cost of preaching in verses 19 and 20. Or excuse me, 18 to 20, really. So the Christ focus of preaching, 13 to 17, and the cost of preaching, 19 to, or sorry, 18 to, to 20. 18 is kind of like a transition verse, so go, you can go either way. Uh, let's look uh, first at the Christ focus of preaching. The Christ focus of preaching. Verses 15 to 17. As I mentioned, the expectations are rising. Some people think John is the Messiah. Look at verse 15. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now John, however, is, is quick to deny this and to, uh, to, 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 to not take this uh, title upon himself. Not only do we see that here, but we see it also in uh, John's gospel in an explicit way. In John chapter 1, verse 8, here's what we read. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So John, it, it, clearly, John, the author of the gospel of John, speaks about John the Baptist and says that John wasn't the light. He was bearing witness to the light who is Christ. And then verse 19 of chapter 1 and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 28, John himself says, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have come, I have been sent before him. John was very clear on his identity. His is a ministry of making much of Christ. He preaches Christ and not himself. John the Baptist makes much of Christ. We see in our passage in three different ways. We might say that he preaches the superior person of Christ. He preaches the saving power of Christ. And he preaches the sovereign punishment of Christ. Notice that he preaches the superior person of Christ. John responds to them. It says, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal, sandals I am not worthy to untie. The first thing we notice here uh, is that John views Jesus as mightier than him. John's saying, I'm baptizing with water. That's my role. I'm doing this physical baptism. But there's someone mightier, stronger, uh, greater than me coming. Jesus is stronger than John. Now, it doesn't mean like that Jesus can beat him in an arm wrestling competition. You know, that, that's not his point. His idea is deeper than that. He understands the person of Christ and who he is, that he is other than John. John knows that Jesus is the Messiah who is associated with Yahweh in the Old Testament. How do we know that? How do we know that John understands that Jesus is Yahweh, God of very God? Well, because his very commission in Isaiah 40 says that he is to be a voice preparing the way of Yahweh. 
That's what Isaiah 40 says. So in Isaiah, this forerunner figure prepares the way for Yahweh to come. But it gets applied to Jesus in his ministry. John is the forerunner of the Lord. And so it is a direct connection of seeing Jesus as Yahweh. And so he understands that this one is the Almighty. Not just, he is mightier because he is the Almighty. And John understands that he is before one who is wholly other than him. He is different. He understands that Jesus is God, Yahweh in the flesh. Now, look at what John's conclusion is based on who he understands Jesus to be. He says, he's mightier than I, he's stronger than I am. And as a result, I'm not worthy to do the lowest task for him. I'm not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. Rabbis, uh, we have some writings that indicate to us uh, some of the practices of rabbis, and they would have these group of students that would follow them around, their, uh, and then they would often do certain tasks for them to lighten their load. But one task that apparently the rabbis did not allow their students to do was untie their sandals. Why? Well, because they considered it to be such a lowly task, such a... Uh, a servant slave-like task, they, they, they would do that themselves. They wouldn't do that. And also we, we think of how this is really the first step in doing the lowest task, right? There, there was uh, foot washing, we know. Uh, we see that later in John's gospel. In John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. But that was a common practice because you would wear sandals and you'd walk around on dusty ground. If you, in fact, if you ever go to Israel, uh, your, your shoes will get very dusty, you will get very dusty. It's just a very a dry, arid place. And so, so by the end of the day, your feet are very dirty, walking through uh, all kinds of muck, and you need to clean your feet. So it was the lowest task for a slave to do, to perform. And so John is really saying, I, I can't even, I'm not even worthy enough to begin that lowest task by just unstrapping your sandals, Jesus. He sees his place. Of course, we think of Jesus who who takes upon himself to wash his disciples' feet, to gird himself, which is incredible, to do the lowest task. Yet John, the greatest, says that he's not even unworthy to, to do that task. He doesn't even view himself, though the greatest, as being worthy to perform the lowest task. I'm not even worthy to be this man's slave, is what John says. Everyone is, John is so popular, so much... Uh, press he's getting, and he says, here's how I view this man that I am speaking of. I'm not even worthy to be a slave, for him to call me a slave. This is the attitude of a man who understands himself rightly before God. This is the most healthy self-image a person could have. View themselves rightly because they view Christ rightly. John knew his place, and he knew his place especially as a preacher. Turn to John chapter 3 for a moment, and we see this in a, from a different angle, same event, same time period of John's ministry. In John chapter 3, verse 25, well, starting verse 22, you see this context of John the Baptist's ministry. 
John elaborates a little more here, what was going on. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenean near Salem, because, uh, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a statement of John's. In other words, what, what some of John's followers are, followers are saying to him is, Hey, Jesus and his followers are getting really popular, John. They are threatening to displace your popularity in ministry. This isn't relevant at all to today and people's view of ministry. <laughs> I mean, how practical. Uh, and, and John, they're, they're really saying, John, you need to do something. You need to make sure your place in history isn't displaced. And John understands who he is and what he is here for. And this is the fulfillment of his ministry, that he would lessen insignificance and popularity and Christ would increase. And so he understands this is happening. My ministry is a success because Christ is sought more highly and people are thinking of me less. And that's why he ends with that great statement, he must increase, but I must decrease. I must become less prominent. He must become preeminent. MacArthur writes this, John saw Jesus' increasing popularity not as a threat to his ministry, but as its fulfillment. And so it must be for all of us that we would become less and Christ would become more. J.C. Ryle wrote, He will be content that his own name be forgotten so long as Christ crucified is exalted. I mean, would it be that that would be true for all of us? Lord, I'm content that my name will be forgotten from the annals of history so long as you use my life to make Christ's name remembered. I'm just a PR agent for you, Lord, <laughs> to public relations, to make much of you. That is my task. Of course, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we preach Christ and not ourselves. And that was John's message. We, I preach Christ, not myself. Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he would say, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In other words, he's saying, we've got this message, this great message, and where is it contained? It, it's contained in us as we proclaim it. We're like jars of clay, and that's not really a, a term we use, but the idea of this word is like, it's like a fast food container. You know, like, we're like a fast food container, and we've got this amazing treasure just imagine like, you know, you went through the drive-thru and you order something and they got your order wrong and instead of handing you a, a, a thing of fries in the fry container, it was full of diamonds. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's okay. You guys, you know, you got it wrong, but I'll just take this, you know. Uh, 
you would never put uh, uh, diamonds in a fry container, but that's the idea Paul is saying. We're like fast food containers, and yet we have this diamond, this treasure of the truth, the gospel. But it, it, it rightly sees the value of, of God in the message, and it rightly sees us for what we are. James Denny, who lived from 1856 to 1917, wrote this sobering statement to anyone who would speak for Christ, especially preachers. He says this, quote, No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. Now, this doesn't mean that preachers don't try to gain people's attention, keep their attention, uh, to say things that will be memorable, to make a turn of phrase so that they can hold the truth more clearly in their minds. That's not saying anything about uh, oratory or trying to be uh, clear in outlines and things like that. But he's saying, if people walk away saying, man, that guy is so clever, that guy is, you know, anything that just says, that guy, that guy, that guy, and not that Christ, that God, that God, that should be the tenor of any man's ministry as he preaches. And that was the tenor of John the Baptist's ministry, that they went, that God, that Christ, he fulfilled his ministry. He decreased, Christ increased. One other passage we'll, we'll get to, you know, when we're old and gray, uh, in John 17. <laughs> uh, John 17, um, you have this, uh, this story that Jesus tells and it says in verse 7 of chapter 17, Will any one of you who has a, sheep, a, sh a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And then he says this, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. This is the attitude we have. We don't go, look, Lord, I did all this. You owe me, God. No, God doesn't ever owe us. And so he's saying, this is our attitude. This is John's mentality. And it should be ours as well. At the end of the day, when we've obeyed, and we've done a lot of disobeying, but insofar as we do obey by God's grace, we don't say, well, God, look at all I did. You owe me. We say, God, we just did what we were supposed to do. We are unworthy slaves. That's what John's view was. I'm so unworthy to even untie his sandal straps. Paul had consternation about those in Philippians 1.17 who preached Christ from selfish motives. Yet he was still thankful that they preached Christ, that they made known the message, but it gave him some discouragement that people were preaching Christ from false motives, trying to make much of themselves in the process. But he said, well, they still preach Christ. Insofar as that, they do that, I'm thankful. But he was certainly not holding that up as a model. So here we see John, who preaches the superior person of Christ, and it reorients everything in our lives when we see Christ's person rightly. It helps us to see ourselves rightly and to live accordingly. Secondly, John preaches the saving power of Jesus the saving power of Jesus. Look again at the end of verse 16. It says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, John can call people to repent and believe and can do the outward signs. Only Jesus can actually cause a person 
to repent and believe and do the inward change, or, or not for them to do the inward, for him to do the inward change. We might say it like this. What John is saying about this powerful salvation that Jesus can bring is that while John's baptism is symbolic and external, Jesus' spiritual baptism has the power of change and is internal. John's baptism is symbolic. Jesus' baptism is supernatural. John can point to salvation. Jesus can actually save. But what does John mean by Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire? What does he mean by that? Well, the first is easier than the second. Baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Let's take them one at a time. This first aspect, baptism is with the Holy Spirit. The idea is that when the age of the Messiah would come in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come in a a special way, whereas the Spirit came upon individuals at times to empower them for service. Of course, the Holy Spirit was regenerating people in the Old Testament, but there was a special indwelling ministry in the new covenant that would come. Ezekiel speaks about that. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. The, uh, we read about the new covenant from uh, Hebrews chapter 8, and the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah is talking about the new covenant there. Here's Ezekiel talking about the new covenant. And he says in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. He's talking about metaphorically. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a, heart, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. And so here are some of the spiritual blessings that he highlights that come with the new covenant. Chapter 37, verse 14, he says, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. I've spoken. I will do it, declares Yahweh. So there, to be sure, there's spiritual and physical blessings of the new covenant. The church experiences the spiritual blessings right now and the fullness of all of the new covenant blessings, including the physical blessings and promises, uh, will come to fruition when Israel experiences the new covenant as a whole in the future. But nevertheless, this promise of the spiritual blessing of the Spirit's work starts when Jesus comes, or specifically in the day of Pentecost. As this kicks off, we see in Acts chapter 1, this begins to take place. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, we read this, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then, of course, we read about chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. And it says, in divided, verse 3, divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then in chapter 11 of Acts, verse 16, we read, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, continues to highlight this giving of the Spirit. And you think, well, there's just this little side footnote here. Uh, why is there, like, people who 
uh, are receiving the Spirit at different times, and there's manifestations going on with it throughout the book of Acts. I think what you have to remember about Acts is it's a very transitionary period. Sometimes people are like, we want to get back to the book of Acts. Well, it's like, well, yes and no. I mean, not everything about Acts is normative for the Christian church. There's a helpful principle to remember in studying the Bible that there is descriptive passages and there's prescriptive passages. Prescriptive is when God says, do this. And descriptive says, this is what was done. And so in the, in the early church, you have first the Holy Spirit comes at, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, but then you'll see a unique instance where the Holy Spirit comes uh, for the Samaritans. And then it'll come for uh, Gentiles, for Cornelius. And then it'll come for the disciples of John the Baptist. And you're like, why is it coming kind of delayed in all these unique instances? And I think that one of the helpful things to remember is there's great, um, great danger of disunity in the early church if there was all these groups that were just happening to experience this all at the same time without apostolic oversight, what you'll find in each of these instances when the Holy Spirit comes in a unique way uh, in the book of Acts is that there's an apostle present to validate it. It's almost like they wait to send an apostle. They hear the God's working among the Samaritans. And you remember there's incredible division between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so how would it have gone when they already had rival religions uh, for them to continue to stay on those two tracks. God wants to bring them together. So what he does is he sends Peter. He says, Peter, go check this out in Samaria. And he goes and he's like, yeah, it's legit. And then the spirit comes to authenticate that. And so you have that with happening with Cornelius as well. And they report back and say, God is working among the Gentiles. And they go, praise God. So it's a way to maintain the unity of the church. And so there's this uniqueness going on there. And then after that unique season, what you find is that the normative practice in the church or the normative pattern of God is that at the moment of regeneration, the Holy Spirit indwells every single individual believer, uh, and that is part of the uniqueness of the new covenant. And so you see that in something like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. And it says this, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Notice he's saying, this spirit baptism is not a second work of God's grace that happens to a Christian. It is the initial work. It is the defining work. If you have not been baptized by the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. You're not a Christian is the idea. That is the idea. We were all, we've all experienced this. And it's really that regenerating work of the spirit. Jesus said that the Spirit would come and indwell. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he will be in you. Of course, Romans 8, 16 and 17 speaks about this indwelling work of the Spirit, that it is definitive for all true believers. I mean, this is the mark. If in the New Covenant, you say, how do you know someone's a Christian? Well, because the Spirit of God dwells in them. They have the Spirit of God. This is the sealing work that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 14, 13 and 14. So the Holy Spirit comes and opens our blind eyes to see the worth and the value of Christ, convicts us of our sin, and that we turn from it and trust in Christ. This is the Holy Spirit's work. He causes regeneration in our hearts, gives us the gift of repentance and faith. This is the power that Jesus has to change. This is what John is saying. I am baptizing you externally, getting you 
dunked underwater. It's a symbol, but it's a symbol of what? Of this deeper reality of what the Messiah is going to do. He is going to bring the Spirit, the age of the Spirit, and he's going to purify your sins. He's going to cleanse you, and he's going to indwell you. Let me ask you this question. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Now, that could be meant in two different ways, right? Now you understand that. Have you been baptized by the Spirit in the sense of you've been regenerated? You've been given a new heart. Your sins have been forgiven because of the Holy Spirit's working. And so, let me ask you, have you experienced the supernatural spirit baptism that regenerates your heart, gives you new life, and places you into the body of Christ? That your sins are forgiven, that you trust in Christ. This is a dry baptism, we might say. It is internal. This is how Jesus changes people through the working of the Spirit. Believers are changed by the supernatural regeneration by the Spirit and then are progressively changed more and more into Christ's image, Romans 8, 29. Another way to look at that question, have you been baptized, is, okay, you've experienced that Spirit regeneration, have you been physically baptized as a symbol of this supernatural baptism and as a way to profess your faith in Christ? This is a wet baptism. It's external. It's symbolic in its action. And so, have you been baptized as a Christian, having become a Christian? If not, and you need to, please talk to one of the elders. We would love to talk to you about baptism, what it means, and how you can be baptized. But Jesus has this baptism that is this internal baptism. John has this external baptism that he is performing that points to that. Okay, so baptism with the Holy Spirit. What about baptism with fire? What about baptism with fire? This is a tricky one. Um, You could go either way. There's good people that take this in different ways, and it's kind of hard. I'll just be honest to, to, to discern exactly what the intent is here. So let me help you. Okay. There are essentially two views for what this fire could be referring to. Now, there's more, but these are the most uh, likely views. One of the questions you have to answer is whether John is talking about one baptism with two aspects. So, is he talking about one baptism, and it has an aspect of, of the Spirit and an aspect of fire, or is he talking about two baptisms and two different groups of people? So if it's one baptism, then it's one group of people experiences it, and that would be believers. So believers experience an, this, this spirit baptism as well as this fire baptism. Or is he talking about two different groups, and he's saying believers experience the baptism by the spirit, regeneration, and unbelievers, this immersion or baptism by fire, which would be judgment. Which one is he talking about? Well, there's a lot going for the view that this is referring to judgment, the fire, and so it would be as if John is saying, he's going to come, and for some, he will baptize with the Spirit. He'll regenerate. And for others, they'll be immersed in a different way through God's judgment. And we, we know fire language in the Old Testament and the New Testament has relation often to judgment, God's judgment. And so that, that makes sense. But not only that, the, the immediate context Jesus is going to talk about, or John is going to talk about Jesus' winnowing fork, and he's going to clear his threshing floor, and there's going to be unquenchable fire. That is clearly fire of judgment. And so in the near context, he's about to talk about this judgment Jesus brings, but the question is, what does he mean here by fire? Others challenge this view and say, well, yes, it can refer at times. It doesn't have to. 
to refer to uh, judgment here, but one of the issues is there's really one grammatical object, you. And so they would say, well, it seems like he's talking about one baptism grammatically, and it has two aspects to it, which would, in, which would make us think maybe it's, it's, it's both experienced by one group. And so fire is not so much a negative thing of judgment, but of a positive thing. And well, how could it be positive? Well, uh, like a refining idea or a purifying idea. And you say, well, I mean, is that ever used? Is that a refining idea of fire ever used? Well, yeah, it is. And actually, it's used of the Messiah and his coming. In fact, Isaiah, if you want to look there, or you can just jot down Isaiah chapter 4. If you're, if you're struggling with this, just hang on, you know. <laughs> Isaiah 4, uh, verses 2 to 5. Interestingly enough, this is the one text that both of these ideas are, are in one context, other than the context that we're studying. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, it says, In that day, the branch... Now, the branch is a messianic title. The branch of, the, of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from the midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. So there's this spirit of burning, and uh, it's this purifying idea. He's washing it away, washing away their, Israel's filthiness. We also find similar language in Malachi, which actually has in its near context the ministry of John the Baptist. And Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to Yahweh. So here, it seems like this Ideas, fire of purification. And it's for the people of God. It's for him cleansing Israel. And then, of course, we have Zechariah, which also speaks in this way, in Zechariah 13, verse 9. And he speaks about his purifying of Israel. And he says in verse 9 of 13, I will put this third, so like one third, into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. And here's the result. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. And so you do have texts that use fire language of purification and in the context of, of the forerunner's ministry. And so, okay, what do we do here? You could go either way. I, honestly, I'll tell you this. Uh, just, just so you know, this is kind of like, uh, I don't usually do this. I usually take a pretty definitive stance. But I, I started by saying, I thought this was fire of judgment. But I've kind of come to the, th to the thought, man, there are a number of these passages related to the Messiah's coming, John the Baptist's ministry, that seem to speak about purification. And I kind of lean there now. So there you go. Do with it what you will. Uh, and here's the idea. It's this idea, I think, of baptism and uh, by, of regeneration and refining. And, th and so this is what's going to distinguish true believers from the chaff that are going to be in the following verse. Here's the big point, even if you go the other way. The idea is Jesus can bring this internal change in you. He has this power that no one else has 
Just think about this. Jesus can change you. He can change you at the most deep level, internally. Isn't this hopeful? I mean, we, we go, I don't know if I can actually change. I've been stuck in this way for so long. He can change. He can change you. You can change at the deepest level because of Christ's power. Romans chapter 6 makes this very point. Paul's giving hope. Sometimes we get stuck in a sin and we think, I just, I can't help it. I can't help it. I just have to sin this way. I, I, I can't stop. Paul says, no, that's ungodly thinking. And here's how he would have you reason. And notice how he focuses on what you think, what you believe, and then how you act. Romans 6, very related to our context in the sense that he talks about this spirit baptism. And in verse 1, he says, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? There he says, don't you know this? Have you forgotten that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been immersed into Christ, we're in union with Christ is the idea, we're immersed or baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life saying, if you have been united with Christ, his death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, once again, appeals to knowledge. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then he says this. He's like, you know all this. You need to remember this. And then he says, verse 11, so you also must consider, you must reckon it, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's saying, you need to know the truth and then you need to believe the truth. Fight for faith to believe what God is saying is true about you. You're not enslaved to your sin anymore. It doesn't have dominion over you. You're freed. You're united to Christ now. You have a new power indwelling you. So live like it, dear Christian. Don't live like, I have to sin in this way. Oh, I have to go back to it again. No, you're different. Chains are broken. And then he says this, you believe that, you fight to believe that in your heart. And then verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. He's saying you need to then act like it. Act like what is true about you because you believe it. And so there's great hope, dear Christian. Christ changes us at the deepest level. And listen, if you're not in Christ, Christ can change you at the most deep level. Come to him. Trust in him. Repent of your sin. Tell him about your sin. He knows about it already. You agree with him about it. And you trust in Christ alone. It changes you. Forgive you of your sin. Cleanse you. John preaches a glorious Christ. He preaches the superior person of Christ. He preaches the saving power of Jesus. And he also preaches the sovereign punishment of Jesus. Look at verse 17. It says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here clearly John is talking about the work of judgment. 
This winnowing fork is, uh, it was used for threshing grain and harvesting it. So they'd throw it up in the air. The wind would blow away the chaff, that was, which was lighter. The, the grain would fall to the ground. They would gather that up, the, the beneficial part. The rest would be blown away. What John is doing is he's describing Jesus performing a work that only God can perform. Only God can perform the work of judgment because only God knows everything. Only God knows enough and knows everything to be able to be the just judge. He knows the secrets and thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so he has given this task of judgment to the Son. John, or Acts 17, 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Christ is the sovereign, and therefore he is the one who has the right to judge. And so he will do this work. It says, really, he will clear his threshing for The idea is like he will thoroughly clear it. There will be nothing left. He, he will not miss anyone. He will deal with every individual is the idea. And the result will be this kind of separation that will take place. The wheat will be gathered into his barn, uh, heaven. He will gather his people, his wheat, into his barn. And the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Clearly a reference to hell. This is a common uh, imagery. Remember when we studied Psalm 1? Psalm 1 verse 4, the wicked are like chaff. They're blown away. They're, they're weightless. Uh, and so this is what happens to them. And this is a common uh, imagery in Scripture. And he describes this fire as unquenchable. Unquenchable. And, and he uses... It's kind of a, not a common word, uh, but he uses it elsewhere and it's in reference to judgment and that this is a fire that doesn't go out. It's a fire that doesn't go out. It's actually the Greek word asbestos. Have you heard of that before? Asbestos, yeah, I'm trying to get rid of it. It, it, it prevents something from going out, right? For, or it prevents fire. Um, and so uh, the idea is uh, this never goes out. This never goes out. This refers to the eternal judgment for the wicked. He warns the uh, people of Christ's coming judgment. He doesn't preach a Jesus in people's own image. He preaches the Jesus you cannot ignore. You cannot ignore this Jesus in the scriptures. He will not let you. He's the great almighty God who will make a separation between peoples. And we will have to deal with him. He will judge everyone. And yet consider his saving power that we just read about. This is the Jesus that can change you. He is the one and the only one who can change you at the deepest level. And this is the Jesus who not only is judge of all, but he is also the exalted one who wrapped a towel around himself and washed his disciples' feet, including Judas. Took the lowest place. All the while, while they're in the midst of arguing who's the greatest and thinking to themselves, oh, I'm, too, I'm too great to do that task. And then there comes Jesus to wash their feet. Is he not the most compelling person you've ever heard of? Aren't you, isn't your heart drawn to him to say, he's so incredible. Who is like this man? No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever acted like this man. No one ever served others like this man. We talk about preaching Christ and preaching his person and work. We don't mean in a thin way uh, that we just kind of repeat the same basic truths, though we do that because we want people to know about the death, burial, resurrection, and perfect life of Christ, that that is our only hope in life and in death for us to have our sins forgiven and to be justified before God. We do repeat that, but there's a thickness to the person and work of Christ in the scriptures that we want to bring out from both Old and New Testament. I mean, think of like the person and work of Christ is like the Atlantic and the Pacific. And, and it's like, you can go there and stand 
stand on the shore and go, wow, I see it. It's an ocean. It's a big body of water. And you can look at it on a map and go, yeah, it's big. It's, that's what it is. It is called the Atlantic. It's called the Pacific. And you can go, I know this is the person of Christ. This is the work of Christ. And you can have an elementary knowledge of it. But then you can actually go swim in it. And you could put on some snorkelers and look in and, whoa, there's more here than I realized. And then you could go scuba diving, go deeper. And maybe you could go if you, you know, uh, had the time and the interest and get in a submersible and go under in, uh, in a, in a uh, submarine and, or one of those ones that goes really far down this Mariana Trench. And you could watch shows about it and you could learn more and more and increase your knowledge. And there would just be a deepening and a deepening and a deepening. And yet, you're not going to plumb the depths. You, you can't fathom all of this. And it's like that. That's, that's what this ministry is about. <laughs> it is about us going deeper and deeper from, from a more elementary understanding of, yeah, there's two oceans on, on either side, the Atlantic and the Pacific, the person and the work of Christ. And then we go deeper and we go deeper and we go, I want a little more. I want more. And, but the further you go down, there's like pressure pushing on you. And you're like, I don't know if I can handle all this. And, and it's just trying to break up the ship that you're in, the submersible. But this is what we want to do. We want to plumb the depths. There's wonder in both. There's wonder in the simplicity and there's wonder in the depth. And it's my hope to spend a lifetime swimming in these two bodies of water with you, both in the Old and the New Testament, highlighting the person and work of Christ. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said. He said, would, would we know whether a minister is sound in the faith and deserving of our confidence as a teacher? We have only to ask a simple question. Where is Christ in his teaching? Would we know whether we ourselves are receiving benefit from the preaching we attend? Let us ask whether its effect is to magnify Christ in our esteem. A minister who is really doing us good will make us think more of Jesus every year we live. That was John's ministry, making much of Christ. And he did it in these three ways. What an amazing ministry. And may our ministries to others and the lost be that way. May our lives be ones that say, I'm going to point away from myself to make much of Christ. I'm his PR agent. I'm going to just make him look great. And finally, let's see not only the Christ-centered preaching, the Christ-focused preaching, uh, uh, the Christ-focus of preaching, but the cost of preaching. Verses 18 to 20. Here's the summary, verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. There's just a word here about exhortation and preaching. Exhortation, we tend to think more of like, hey, you need to do this. Here's some instruction. Do this and, and don't do that, right? And, and we're trying to make those pronouncements. Uh, whereas preaching is a declaring of what is true, right? Just declaring the facts, reminding people of the facts of what God has done. Let me just say this. A helpful lesson for us as we grow as a church. And here's what we want. We want to be ministering to one another. Paul said about the the Romans in Romans 15, 14, he's confident about them that they are able to counsel one another. That's what we want to be able to do. It's just at whatever level we are, uh, whether it's more formal or informal, to be helping one another think biblically about the scriptures and about our lives in relationship to them. So what that's going to involve is doing two things. I mean, more than that, but exhortation to one another and preaching. Now, I don't mean like you, you get on a pulpit and preach in front of one individual, but I mean heralding, proclaiming the finished work of Christ. And this is helpful because we don't want to just exhort people, right? You know someone's doing something they, they ought not to be doing or they need to grow in some way, and so you go, I'm going to go exhortation mode on them. And it's like, dur, 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 dur. you know, you just start like hammering into them about all the things they need to do. You need to mix that. It's very helpful to mix that with, and let me remind you of the gospel as your motivation. Here's the work that Christ has done to motivate you. And, and, and both of those need to come together. So let's grow as counselors of one another 
so that our body is healthy. And let's do it by both saying, all right, this person needs help in this area, and here's the passages, and here's maybe how I can help them and exhort them to godliness. But also, let me couch it in reminders of the gospel as motivation. That is the motivation. That's the engine that fuels us, the indicatives imperatives, right? That's what it is. Let me remind you what God has done, and here's what we need to do in, like, in response to that. Okay, there's my soapbox. Uh, as a church, I'm very encouraged by our church. I just want us to continue to grow in these ways and just have this mentality like, yeah, we're here to disciple, to do spiritual good to one another. Okay, the cost of preaching, that's a side point. The cost of preaching, and here we see in verses 19 and 20 what the cost was for John. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is out of chronological order. We already mentioned that when we started the, this gospel. But he includes this information early about John being put in prison to make a point about John's preaching in his kind of thematic approach here. Uh, this family of Herod was a hot mess. I mean, Herod the Great, Antipas's father, had 10 wives. And then what we see here, what's going on, it's kind of, you could get really in the weeds and get really confused, but here's the basic point. Herod Antipas divorced his wife and married his niece, Herodias, who was married to his brother. So this Herod that we're reading about uh, goes on a trip, and he passes through his brother's, you know, region or house, and he sees his niece, and he develops feelings for her, and he uh, wants to marry her, and she is his sister-in-law and his niece. And he divorces his wife, and she divorces her husband, and they get married. So two marriages were ended to establish a new one that is, was immoral on multiple levels. I mean, this is kind of like the, the First Corinthians 5 thing, like Paul's saying, even the Gentiles don't act like this. He's confronting the Corinthians about the sin there. And the Gentiles were like, whoa, this is bad, right? They even knew this is bad. And what happens here? Well, John reproves him for this sinful practice. We're not told how. Like, he didn't have Twitter, you know, <laughs> and, uh, or, or anything like that, or Instagram. Somehow he's, he's preaching about this. Maybe he says he's just preaching about the culture and he says something about Herod and his immoral relationship and gets back to him and Herod's upset. I mean, if John the Baptist did have a Twitter handle, can you believe it? I mean, he, he would break the internet. Uh, he, his account would be shut down, you know. We are sorry, but this account has been suspended for breaking our policy on comments that are harmful and non-inclusive. It's like, <laughs> it's like man, John, he, he would not make it. Uh, Dale Rav Davis says this, what is, John sh what is Luke showing us? He is telling us that John the Baptist was not invited to conduct Herod Antipas' prayer breakfast. <laughs> yeah. Herod viewed John as a political threat to him. And later, after John is dead, he sees Jesus ministering and he thinks it's John back from the dead. It's like haunting him. Notice the text says that he added this to them all. To all of his wicked deeds, he added this to them all, that he put John in prison. To add to all Herod's immorality, he silenced John, or he sought to. Gerald Bach has a helpful comment in his commentary. He says, often sin seeks to remove the source of exposure rather than heed a warning of love. Wow, isn't that true? The sting of conviction comes when something is true about our lives and we go, instead of heeding that warning, some say, you know what, I'm gonna silence that critic in some way. I'm going to get away from them. I'm going to stop hanging out with them or whatever they might do. That's what Herod does. He doesn't want to hear it. And so he silences his critic. 
And on another note, there's, there are times to confront political leaders, call them to God's standard. There's wisdom to know when that is. Uh, Elijah does that. And certainly John is in the spirit and power of Elijah. He does that with um, Jezebel and Ahaz, calling them out for their wickedness. R.C. Sproul talked about how the, the church is the conscience of the culture. Church is the salt of the world. It's to preserve the culture in a way, in, in that way like salt does. And so there's a time to preach against the evils of our culture and its leaders, and discernment is needed. John teaches us, though, that preachers should not look for their reward in this life. They should expect trouble. Ralph says, all true servants of Christ must be content to wait for their wages. The word of God is not imprisoned, even if we might be. When the word of God goes forth, sometimes it is received, sometimes it's rejected, and sometimes there's retribution for the one who spoke it. And that's what happens for John. There's a great story about Hugh Latimer, who was a preacher during the reign of King Henry VIII in England. And he once preached before King Henry VIII. And Henry was not super pleased with his message as he called out different sins. Similar to Herod, you know, and him, John the Baptist calling out sins. The boldness that he preached. He, he ordered that Latimer preach again the next Sunday but to apologize for the offense that he had given. And so Latimer comes up. The next Sunday, he reads his text, and then he begins his sermon this way. Quote, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art to speak this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest? Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdeth all thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell? Therefore, take care, that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And he preached the same message <laughs> with considerably more energy. <laughs> One Puritan summarized his heart this way as his life came to an end. He said this, quote, Still thinking I had little time to live, my fervent heart to win men's souls did strive I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us that just demands to be preached both in private and in public and a Christ that demands to be preached and heralded for he is incomparable, uncontainable, Lord, may you make him more and more to us the point of our lives, the very marrow of our satisfaction. Lord, we pray that you would help us to herald Christ, to be about Christ, to make much of him, and for us to decrease and us to be content with us being made less of and Christ being made more of. Help us to so value Christ that whatever the cost might be, it may be worth it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.